Welcome to Westminster Insider. The podcast gets started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea. To change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. A single glass of champagne imparts a feeling of exhilaration, wrote the 24-year-old war reporter, Winston Churchill, on his return from the Sudan in 1898. The nerves are braced, the imagination is agreeably stirred, the wits become more nimble. It was a discovery Churchill would return to throughout his life, almost every day of his life, in fact, fueling his pen and his oratory, his dinner conversation and his late-night desk work, with glass after glass of fine French wine. It seems unlikely now that Britain will ever have another Prime Minister who drinks as much as Churchill. Paul Roger was his favourite, and he drank it by the bucket load. At least a bottle and a half of vintage champagne every day, along with several long whisky and sodas, perhaps some more wine and occasionally a little brandy before bed. And the best thing of all, it barely touched the sides. It is gargantuan consumption. When you look at Churchill and try and sort of work out whether this is more myth than reality, you are struck by the fact that he really did drink, often a glass or two of white wine for breakfast as a sort of opener to the day and would just continue to sup all the way through it. This is the BBC journalist Ben Wright, whose 2016 book, Order, Order, charts the rise and fall of political drinking. The anecdotes in his book stretch back centuries, but there's no doubt who's the star turn. Churchill was a sipper and not a guzzler, but he would be sipping constantly through the day uh, in a way that now would simply be conceivable for a politician to attempt. One of my friends, actually, who's another journalist, did for an article somewhere, (laughs) try and do a day's work drinking the same quantity of alcohol that Churchill was reputed to do. And uh, he collapsed, I think, in a heap by about two o'clock in the afternoon. He couldn't do it. And and Churchill, of course, was running Britain's war effort on this consumption. But he always used to say that he had taken more out of alcohol than alcohol had taken out of him. And he had a constitution that could handle it. Churchill's legendary drinking has inspired, or at least provided a fig leaf for, generations of politicians and political journalists ever since. If the man idolised by many as Britain's greatest Prime Minister could defeat the Nazis while knocking back whiskey and sodas from noon until night, the theory goes, then the rest of us have little to fear from the odd boozy three-hour lunch. And of course, no one idolises Churchill more than the current journalist-turned-politician occupying 10 Downing Street, Boris Johnson. Ben Wright interviewed Bojo for this book back when he was still Mayor of London. And the PM's views on mixing booze with politics are, I think, worth revisiting. Johnson, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is pro-drink and pro-drinking it. But sounds a little more circumspect than Churchill in his approach. When I interview Boris Johnson, uh, he's somebody who is quite happy to be open about the fact that he enjoys alcohol. But he said to me that it's a treacherous friend. 
He said it can encourage and embolden and make the merry-go-round and receptions and dinners that a politician has to go through more bearable. But a politician has to be careful. They have to know how much to have. Otherwise, you can quickly find yourself getting into trouble. Johnson's actual words on the subject are fascinating. The crucial thing about using alcohol at political engagements, Johnson said, is you have to know exactly how much to have. It starts well, there's a terrific elan, but then after a while, your words start to slur, and then you find yourself speaking very fast, for no particular reason. And then you start slowing down, for no particular reason. And then you become somehow disembodied, and you're spectating at this event. And then a blackness, a morbidity descends. And then you become sort of bitter. Now, I've been drinking with Boris Johnson several times. Well, drinking in the same room as him, at any rate. And he certainly never looked morbid or sort of bitter to me. I can remember him making a show-stopping speech while Mayor of London, in Downing Street, glass in hand, audience in hysterics. I can remember him dashing around a Foreign Office drinks bash while Foreign Secretary, with several bottles of English sparkling wine, endlessly topping up journalist glasses with what he'd gleefully renamed Brexit juice. And I can remember interviewing him over a lunchtime pint in, where else, Weatherspoons, during the 2019 Tory leadership campaign. Even then, he drank half and left the rest. But while every politician has their own approach to alcohol, there can be no escaping its eternal presence at the very centre of British political life. So with the bars and pubs and restaurants of Westminster finally reopening this week after months of winter lockdown, this seems like a good moment to take a closer look at the long, and not always healthy, relationship between politics and alcohol. Who were the greatest drinkers of the Westminster scene? Why on earth do so many political types, and yes, I'm including myself in this, seem to drink so much? Is it because it actually helps what we do? Or is it just because we can? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're studying the art of political drinking and why this long-established tradition endures to this day. Clinking glasses, raised voices, political chatter, vastly overpriced lager served with vastly overpriced bags of Walker's crisps, an open side door onto an open side street rammed with parliamentary aides and researchers and journalists and spads, glasses in hands, smiles on faces, the busy rush hour traffic heading up Whitehall and beyond. Yes, the Red Lion has reopened this week and all is well in the world. Very excited, actually. Um, excited to see, to see the staff, because we haven't seen each other for a really long time. And obviously welcoming all the customers back. This is Sophia Vanker, landlady at the Red Lion, one of Westminster's oldest and best-known pubs. For those of you who've never had the pleasure, it stands on Parliament Street, just yards from the House of Commons, and just across the road from 10 Downing Street. Rather magnificently like several other pubs in the immediate area. It still has an old division bell hanging on the wall, installed many moons ago to let errant MPs know when it's time to vote. 
Since Charles Dickens first drank here in the 1830s while working as a press gallery journalist, it's been the venue of choice for a significant portion of our political class. First of all, it's obviously the best pub in the area, you know, slightly biased, but uh, it's got a lot of history. I know people long to come here. People are emailing going, are you open soon? Are you open soon? Please come and come and have a beer. Just as soon as I pop outside with a rubbish bin, everyone goes, are you open? Can we have a beer? Sophia was speaking to us just before the Red Lion finally reopened from lockdown. One of a dozen or so core venues across Westminster where the political community while away their time. And inside the parliamentary estate, famously, there are yet more watering holes to choose from. Like the legendary Strangers Bar, just off the Commons Riverside Terrace. And the mysterious Smoking Room, where Tory grandees gather over glasses of decent red wine. It's far from universal, I should stress, but there is no doubt that for plenty of people working in politics, alcohol remains a central part of the working week. A way to unwind, to build alliances, to break the ice with new contacts, or to kill time while waiting for late-night votes. And for some of them, some of us, in fact, starting early is nothing to be ashamed of. So from about 12 noon, drinking is a thing. This is the spectator journalist Isabel Hardman, whose book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, takes a forensic look at the day-to-day lives of our MPs. So you'll have lunches with MPs. Sometimes I've turned up and they've already ordered the very expensive bottle of wine, which generally makes them move down my order of MPs I like. But some of them expect to drink and, you know, you have a couple of glasses of wine over lunch. I then go back to my desk and drink a vat of caffeine to try to stay awake having had these glasses of wine over lunch. But for some MPs, it it then continues because they then go to afternoon parliamentary receptions held by various campaign groups and so on. And once again, unless it's the alcohol whole concern reception there's wine and then you've got to about 6pm and it's time to go into strangers which is um the, the most popular most famous bar in parliament and gradually people come in and out as votes go on and off and um then you've reached the end of the day and it started at at 12 noon and I'd probably describe myself as a heavyweight in terms of how much alcohol I can take. But I'm often quite shocked by how much my lunch contacts can put away. I remember telling someone, um, a GP who I knew, just about my sort of days and how I'd take MPs out for lunch and give them wine. He was like, what? They have wine at lunch and then they go and legislate? And I sort of thought, well, actually, yeah, I mean, it is a bit weird, isn't it? It's certainly unusual. I spent seven years working as a local and regional journalist before I arrived in Westminster in 2012. And I can count the number of boozy work lunches I'd ever had on the fingers of one hand. Before that, I worked in call centres, in the building trade, as a van driver, in market research. There was no booze culture at work at all. And none of my mates back home with normal jobs seemed to find themselves ordering expensive bottles of wine before one o'clock on a weekday afternoon. And yet, not everyone thinks drinking at lunchtime is weird. Well, I mean, I've coined a new phrase in the English language, the PFL, absolutely. And the the politer version is a proper Farage lunch. There is is another version, as you might imagine. Um, Yeah, no, PFL's a great fun. There is surely no British politician of the modern era more associated with drinking than Nigel Farage. I spoke to him down a slightly jumpy Zoom line from the United States earlier this week. It was only 7.30 in the morning over there, but his enthusiasm at the thought of a proper lunch 
remained admirably undimmed. But I came from that sort of city, 80s culture, where the lunch was absolutely the central part of the day, where really not much had changed since P.G. Woodhouse in 1911 wrote, people who work in the city spend all morning discussing where to go for lunch, then inevitably walk up the same alleyway to the same chop house they'd gone to the day before, and then spend the rest of the day telling each other how good it was. (laughs) 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 And so I did kind of grow up with that. But when you're forming relationships, and in politics, the whole thing's about relationships, it seems to me there was probably no better way of getting to know someone than spending a couple of hours at lunch with them. For the uninitiated, what does a PFL look like? I mean, Kingsley Amos once said the most depressing phrase in the English language was, shall we go straight through? (laughs) 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 And I agree with that entirely. So you've got to have a couple of ciders before lunch starts. That's clear. I've always said that, you know, if there's two or three of you at lunch, it's not really a proper lunch unless you've got well into the second bottle of wine. was always my feeling on it. But there are people out there who don't drink, and I'm sure they have lots of fun too. But there is just something about human beings having a drink together that just does form great bonds, great fun, and frankly, I recommend it. I mean, I really do. Do you think you perform better, say, on TV or maybe in a debate or something like that if you've had some alcohol? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, if you're getting up to read a scripted speech and you're one of these politicians who's frankly wound up at the back um, and sent off for the party machine to do their bidding, then there wouldn't be an advantage. But if you're somebody who is speaking from the heart, off the cuff, then I think a glass or two or something takes the edge off, makes you freer, makes you more relaxed. I think it makes you better. Yes, I do. I had a thing with playing pool where if you'd had like two or three pints, I thought I was definitely better at pool. But if I'd had five pints, I was definitely getting worse again. Have you ever, have you got a tipping point where, you know, it it starts to not help? So my working day, I'm normally at my desk by five. I get up at half past four, make a cup of tea, I start working. So I kind of reckon by um, by one one thirty, I reckon I'm due a treat of some kind, <laughs> um, and that's always that's always the view that I've taken. But what used to happen was, you'd get to five or six o'clock, you'd had a few, and then news night ring. Will you go on with Paxman tonight? That was when the judgment call had to be made. So I used to reckon four was okay. But five or more, no, no, no. In the UKIP press office, that was the five-pint rule. So some people cynically probably think that whole thing of Nigel with a pint in his hand, we've seen the picture so many times, is all a bit of an act and it's no, a man-of-the-people no. thing. It's, it's not, is I'll, it? <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what happened. Simon Walters was on the Mail on Sunday and the Mail on Sunday were obsessed that I was going to steal Tory votes at their beloved Tory party <laughs> under David Cameron and George Osborne. So I do this big interview with Walters for the mail on Sunday. And afterwards, he says, should we go for a drink? I said, yes, boom, up turns a photographer. And you can see what the mail on Sunday are doing. They're basically saying this bloke's a piss artist. Editors were paying photographers to get pictures of me in any Westminster pub they possibly could. So I then thought, right, I tell you what, let's turn this round the other way. Let's actually make this a feature of what we do. It wasn't an act, because I would always go for a drink with the boys after work or whatever it was. But in the end, it did me an enormous amount of good. And the reason is, people said, do you know what? That's what we do on a Friday night after we've been at work. You know, it it kind of was a, 
I think for me, a kind of normalization. And so I was sort of seen as this beer drinking, smiling, happy warrior. So as I say, it wasn't planned, it wasn't staged, but that was how it developed. Now clearly, as with most other things in life, Nigel Farage is very much an outlier when it comes to the art of political drinking. But there's no doubt he has benefited from the way he's used alcohol as part of his public persona. And he's certainly not the only politician who's found alcohol to be a useful tool from time to time. Sir Alan Duncan spent most of the 2010s working as a diplomat within the coalition government, first as an international development minister for David Cameron, and then as a foreign office minister for Theresa May. His recently published private diaries, In the Thick of It, chart scores of quiet, and not so quiet, drinks with foreign dignitaries, British ambassadors, political allies and key members of staff. He's not a massive drinker by Westminster standards, but he told me that booze can be a valuable weapon to reach for in the diplomatic bag. So I had a decade, really, as a roving UK diplomat. I actually don't think there's any substitute for personal relations face-to-face. It is in the um, mixing and mingling, be it over coffee or a drink, uh, on the edge of those sort of more plenary sessions. For the most part, Sir Alan told me, foreign ministers are not heavy drinkers when attending summits or bilateral talks, but there are important exceptions to the rule. I think actually, although alcohol is invariably on offer at the lunches and the dinners, I don't think that working ministers tend to drink much uh, when they're sitting there, often because they're under a sort of strict schedule. They might know they've got an interview immediately afterwards, they've got to jump on a plane. I think that alcohol can matter. I did a diplomatic deal pretty well when I was totally pissed. I mean, I had a very difficult challenge in Argentina where we wanted to open up more flights to the Falklands. And at the bottom of the um, UK ambassador's residence in Buenos Aires is a fantastic wine cellar. In Argentina, Malbec is the great wine. And uh, so you've got wine bottles all the way around. And so it's a lovely sort of atmosphere, really, for negotiating. So I was sitting down with Carlos Foradori, the Argentine foreign minister, to negotiate extra flights to the Falklands. And you heard us, well, that was one bottle of Malbec open and now... That was another one. And at two in the morning, we shook hands on a deal for extra flights. And um, I have to say, I said to the ambassador, I am totally pissed, but I think we got there. (laughs) Anyway, the next morning, Carlos phoned up and said, I think I'd had a few last night. What was it we agreed? (laughs) Very honourably, Mark Kent, the ambassador, faithfully sort of relayed what it was we agreed. And so both slightly hung over, we shook hands again and did the deal. We've all heard of gunboat diplomacy, but perhaps red wine diplomacy can be an equally effective tool. Coming up in part two, we'll look back at some of the greatest drinkers of British political history and how they used alcohol both to their advantage and to their severe detriment. We'll ponder what drives some MPs to drink and what happens when it all becomes too much. And we'll be asking what on earth it's like to be teetotal in Westminster and whether abstinence can be an asset when those around you are a little the worse for wear. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. 
In the time it takes to listen to this advert, buy now pay later customers in the UK will have saved £100 in interest charges. Over a year, that adds up to £76 million, the same as it costs to build the London Eye. We're able to save customers money because we charge retailers a fee instead of the customer, and 14 million shoppers in the UK seem to like it. So why pay interest and why pay fees when there's a smarter way to pay? Klarna. Oh, there's another 100 quid. Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. The amazing thing about the hard drinking culture in parts of Westminster is that it really has always been this way. Throughout much of the 18th and 19th centuries, our universally male and universally privileged political class enjoyed themselves pretty much as they saw fit. Politics just floated along on a sea of claret for about two centuries. Here's the BBC journalist and author, Ben Wright. My book starts back in Georgian England, where politics was the preserve of three bottle men, they were called. People like Pitt the Younger, Charles James Fox, some of the rakes who populated clubland at the time. And they were extraordinary, epic drinkers. I mean, I don't think there was much politics going on, but there was an awful lot of boozing. And they used to hang out in clubland in Pall Mall, drink copious amounts, gambled, womanised, went to hellfire clubs at the weekends. When they did politics, I've got no idea. But they were extraordinary drinkers. And people were able to do this really because I guess there wasn't a great deal of accountability at that time, presumably. No, there was no Twitter. There was hardly any political journalism of anything that we'd recognise today. So people could, could drink with impunity and there was no sanction or criticism for those that did. But, I mean, they were, they were, the risks to their health were clear even then. I mean, William Pitt the Younger, who was the second longest serving prime minister, I think. Uh, He was dead by 40 because he was drinking three bottles of port a day. In his case, it was because I think he'd been advised by his doctors that this would be good for his health. But it killed him at a very young age. And do we have any idea if this sort of culture had a particularly negative impact on the way the country was being run? (laughs) Well, I mean, the politics then was, they did far less than they do now. There were no focus groups, there were no manifestos. Elections, of course, were nothing like we know now. I don't think a lot was demanded of politicians in those days, which is why I think they could drink as much as they did. In the late 19th and early 20th century, politics, like society in general, became somewhat more abstemious. But there were notable exceptions, not least the wartime Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith known to his rivals, with good reason, as Squiffy. He enjoyed the good life of London. He was a bon vivant. And his, his heavy drinking was all thought to be good fun and part of his character. It didn't seem like that, though, two or three years into the First World War, with the bodies mounting up in the Somme and the war going very badly wrong. The press picked up on his drinking and his love of the good life and turned on him. And it was one of the reasons, I think, that he was forced to leave the stage and then, of course, was replaced by Lloyd George, who had no interest in booze. The post-war period had legendary drinkers too, some of them deeply troubled individuals who were somehow managing to hold down key roles in the government. Clearly the standout one uh, from the 60s, 70s is George Brown. A large 
and a highly developed industry. Uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party in the 60s, foreign secretary later on, big figure and a likeable figure in many ways in British politics, but had a drink problem. And the problem with George Brown is that it didn't take much to set him off. As time went on, Labour colleagues began to schedule their meetings with Brown for earlier and earlier in the day. Realising there was little point in seeing him in the late afternoon, when he became increasingly incoherent. And the public, I think, first became aware of his drink issue um, the night that John F. Kennedy was murdered in Dallas and George Brown was pulled into, I think it was the BBC, for a special programme after drinking a bit too much early in the evening and gave this really embarrassing, excruciating, lachrymose, booze-soaked sort of tribute to this man he'd only ever met for five minutes but pretended was his best friend. And the letters of complaint poured in afterwards. And that's when George Brown acquired an unhelpful reputation for being a bit of a soak. And then you compare that with someone like Roy Jenkins, who also had this reputation for loving fine red wine. And yet that was sort of seen as like a lovable part of his character, really, in a way that obviously wasn't the case with George Brown. Is it all about whether you can handle it or not? I think so. And how you incorporate into your personality as well. You couldn't get a more Labour figure from the heartlands of Welsh Labour than someone like Nybev and, or to an extent, Roy Jenkins. They had sort of similar South Wales backgrounds from relatively humble origins. Nybevan celebrated the fact that he had achieved so much in his life and was tagged a Bollinger Bolshevik. And he reveled in that. He thought it was part of his success and it was something that all working people should aspire to, to be. They should, they should enjoy the good life just as he did. And Roy Jenkins, I think framed his drinking and publicised it and was comfortable with it. And I think the public quite liked that aspect of, of both their personalities. Few senior cabinet ministers of recent years have been quite so public about their drinking, with the honourable exception, of course, of Ken Clark. He was the last Chancellor to uphold the grand tradition of taking a glass of something strong into the Commons chamber to fortify the spirits on Budget Day. Scotch was his tipple of choice. But inevitably, we've also had to find savings in other programmes. Find out in a minute. Falling! <laughs> other senior figures have been a little more circumspect. Harold Wilson would have a private glass of brandy to steady his nerves, both before and after PMQs. Tony Blair revealed in his autobiography that he'd been using alcohol as a daily prop to unwind. Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron and even Theresa May all enjoyed quiet whiskies at the end of the day. But perhaps the biggest drinker to occupy number 10 in recent decades was Thatcher's husband, Dennis. He loved a drink and he loved knowing that everybody knew that he loved a drink. Dennis Thatcher had his own special lexicon of alcoholic drinks. So he would begin with an opener, that's the first one, then he'd move on to a brightener, a lifter, a tincture, a large gin and tonic without the tonic, a snifter, a snort, a snorter, and finally a snorterino, which more or less emptied the bottle in one go. But alcohol being alcohol, there is a darker side to all of this. There have been plenty of tragic cases down the years too, such as that of the former Labour MP, Eric Joyce, who headbutted a Tory MP while drunk in Strangers in 2012. Famously, the bitter wrangling over who should replace him as MP for Falkirk triggered Ed Miliband to rewrite the Labour Party's internal voting rules, 
so leading directly to the improbable rise of Jeremy Corbyn and all that's happened since. Joyce's career, however, ended in darkness and disgrace. And there's been no greater tragedy of recent times than the demise of the much-loved Liberal Democrat leader, Charles Kennedy. His fun-loving, wise-cracking public persona had long masked a darker secret, and he was forced to resign in 2006 when his alcoholism could no longer be hidden from public view. His marriage collapsed and he died in 2015, aged just 55, a few months after losing his parliamentary seat. We all knew that he had a, a drink problem. I think the, his own party tried to cover it up as much as they could, but he wouldn't have been seen drinking in the bars and you know, having a merry old time on the terrace. I think he was a private drinker and he tried to hide it from people. And some of the saddest stories in my book are individual MPs who were destroyed by drink sort of quietly and privately. And they weren't in the press, but they were masking who knows what, but with drink. And it's impossible to say now you know, the extent to which that continues. Isabel Hardman interviewed dozens of MPs privately while researching her book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians and reckons problem drinking is more widespread than it appears. I don't think we have the same heavy drinking culture that Parliament had, say, 30, 40 years ago. But that's not to say that there aren't still problems with drinking in Westminster. I do think that the increase in the number of women in Parliament has made a big difference, because culturally we are just likely to drink a bit less there's a lot more MPs who are young parents, whether mothers or fathers, who um, actually just need to get home <laughs> to their children and can't stay up late drinking in the same way. Uh, so I think it has changed a bit, but it is still really important. You know, it's a social lubricant. It's one of those things that, frankly, for both of us as journalists, it's, it's quite useful because it, it helps people relax and they get chattier. And I don't think that's a manipulative thing. I think that's the case in social settings as well, that people drink to, to relax and to get on with one another better. And some, in some cases, to find one another interesting, which can be useful in Westminster as well. Can be an uphill struggle in Westminster sometimes. Um, you, you spent a lot of time speaking to MPs privately about their lives and, and you know, literally their day to day when you were researching your book. That, that comes across very clearly. Um, how much did alcohol come up as an issue for MPs, you think, generally when you were chatting to them? Yeah, there were three really clear things that came up um, for MPs as, as a sort of struggle uh, Mental health was one of them. Family and relationships was the hardest thing, I think. But alcohol was was a third factor in a difficult and unhealthy life that, that they all talked about. Even people who, when they started in Parliament, wouldn't have seen themselves as, as big drinkers. Uh, the hours, the pressure, uh, the lonely time away from home, from your partner, from your family does mean that you often change your habits. And so I remember talking to one MP who's since left Parliament, but but they said, you know, initially it was just one night a week that I was away from my other half. And then it started to be two nights. And then by the end of the Parliament, actually, that their marriage was in trouble. And that's not, a, I'm not identifying uh, that MP accidentally because there are so many MPs who've told me that story where it just slowly built up that they were out drinking with colleagues more and more. And did you ever meet an MP who was getting the support they needed for these kinds of problems? 
Parliament's got loads better in recent years. So they have an in-house medical service and they can refer MPs if they need to to um, a psychiatric hospital um, where they'll get the support of a consultant psychiatrist and psychotherapist and that's all funded by the Commons. But I think the um, networks within parties leave a lot to be desired. Whips are often the only people who are regularly in touch with MPs. And their job has a pastoral element, but obviously their main job is to get people through the right voting lobby. And MPs have a vested interest often in not telling them that that they're struggling um, and in not asking for support because that may be used against them in in a crunch vote or it may just dampen their prospects for promotion. And it's not just the actual politicians. The antics of our MPs are often eclipsed by the aides, the journalists and the hangers-on who surround them. Tony Blair's former spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, has written movingly about his own battles with alcoholism and about how Westminster is a laboratory against good mental health. And Gordon Brown's former aide, Damien McBride, devotes a whole chapter in his memoir to his extraordinary alcohol intake. By 25, he writes, I was by any measure an alcoholic, calling into Smithfield Market for 7am pints on the way into Westminster and grabbing a couple more at lunchtime while nipping out for a sandwich. Later, when he became a spin doctor in the Treasury, drinking with journalists was a central part of how he approached his work. So what does life in Westminster look like if you don't drink? Does being teetotal in Parliament put you at an advantage over hard-drinking colleagues? Or do you find yourself excluded from the events and the parties that really count? I stopped drinking when my second child was born, um, largely because I never wanted my children to see me drunk because I grew up with an alcoholic mother um, who I loved dearly but unfortunately did have a problem with drink. This is Camilla Tomini, Associate Editor and Political Columnist with The Daily Telegraph. When I came to be a mother myself, I just didn't want ever the lines to be blurred between me being drunk or sober. I did drink in my late teens and 20s, and I'd say wasn't always a great drinker. And um, I did wrestle a lot during that period of my drinking with getting into all sorts of scrapes. I was never dependent on drink, and I used to go for long periods without drinking at all. But just in order to simplify my life... Um, and not have to worry about the threat of turning into my mother, I suppose, much as I loved her and much as she was a wonderful person beyond the alcohol. Now, I've always told people, no doubt self-servingly, that as a political journalist, drinking is basically an essential part of my job. Camilla Tomini, however, is living proof that it is not. I think people think it's a, a penalty or it's going to impede your work in trying to extract the truth from people. Actually, it does the opposite because when people get more and more drunk and tell you more and more things, you're actually there able to remember them the next morning, which is quite useful. I know of plenty of fellow hacks, and I name no names at all, that have got great stories and literally forgotten what they are um, by the time they've woken up and sobered up the next morning. And it's obvious from your uh, your work and now your new political column that it isn't stopping you from getting stories and, and inside information. That, I think, is about trust and honesty and the ability to have frank conversations, which are probably born out of um, maybe my sobriety or the fact that I'm pretty honest about what I'm 
doing and what I'm after when I'm meeting people for lunch or dinner or what have you. I think, frankly, it doesn't make a difference whether there's alcohol involved. And maybe people find it slightly disarming that I may be sober and they may be drunk. If somebody is absolutely paralytic, then I would feel a duty of care towards helping them home, by the way. Maybe that makes me a bit more trustworthy, this sense that I've been there and I've actually literally been in in the gutter. It sounds awful. You know, often I feel when I hear these stories of people getting into scrapes in the bars of Westminster or anywhere, um, I almost feel a need to reach out to them because often if people have got themselves into that state professionally, something's gone very, very wrong personally. Do you, do you think there is a problem in Westminster with the amount that people drink and with the, the drinking culture there? Well, I think people in Westminster both... Um, on the political side or their staff or indeed the journalists covering them are under enormous pressure. It's a very cutthroat environment. And therefore, I suppose when it comes to the evening, is it any wonder in such a hotbed environment like Parliament that people are drinking quite a lot to sort of, I suppose, try and create some space between a hard day's work and an evening's play? Is it worrying that that's what people are doing? Yes, but then we can have a much more macro conversation about why it is that people seem to drink to excess in this country. One idea frequently mooted to reduce Westminster's drinking culture is to ban the sale of alcohol within Parliament's restaurants and bars. Here's Isabel Hardman. I think a lot of people would resent that saying, well, we're being punished for people who actually just need more support. Um, you know, we don't ban alcohol in the wider world, um, but we could do with with giving people better, better help for substance misuse problems. Um, and, you know, it's not an illegal substance. It is a nice thing to enjoy. I think it's more about sort of how readily available it is. Sir Alan Duncan, it's fair to say was not entirely impressed when I floated the idea of a total ban on alcohol in Parliament. I find that most, a most appalling point of view. What the hell is someone doing thinking that they want to lay down a rule like that? We're not monks. We're people. And, um, you know, often confined for a whole week to this, this job that lasts from maybe eight in the morning till one in the morning, unlike many or most others. And all of this journalism which says, oh, there are 20 bars in the House of Commons. You know, just shove it. It gives the impression that all anyone does as an MP is is go and have a glass of wine and get sloshed, be it in the, the dining room, the smoking room or the terrace. So, you know... I'm no no longer in Parliament, but on behalf of all MPs, to those who just think they're all alcoholics who go to the one of 20 bars, go shove it. Blimey. As ever, where alcohol is concerned, strong views are clearly held on all sides. And it's certainly true that there are plenty of people in Westminster who hardly drink at all, and plenty more, indeed the majority, who do so mostly in moderation. Pockets of the old gentleman's club culture certainly remain, but it's been steadily diluted by Parliament's family-friendly hours and its increasingly diverse makeup. And yet, there is something about the high-octane atmosphere of Parliament, the long hours and the high levels of stress, and the sheer remoteness from normal life, which makes me feel like alcohol will always have an important role to play. For as long as drinking remains one of Britain's favourite ways to socialise, to form new friendships and to unwind at the end of the day. 
and so shall it be in Westminster too. Everything in moderation, as the poet Oscar Wilde famously put it more than a century ago, including moderation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a comment too. Or just tell me what you think over a pint outside the Red Lion next Monday night. My producer this week was Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.